Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast where we explore the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. It feels like ages since we've recorded anything. It is ages since we've recorded anything. So it's nice to see you, Pete. It's nice to be back. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Listeners, for you it's only been a week, but for Pete and I it's been much, much longer probably. Yes. Anyway, we're paying another visit to Earth Prime this week mm-hmm. via the House of Mystery. Ah. Ooh. Ah, ooh. For we are doing a story from issue 180 of House of Mystery that was published on the 6th of March, 1969. Now, this is from the period when House of Mystery had shifted into its phase as a full-on, proper, scary horror comic. Up until issue 173, there have been stories featuring Dial H for Hero and The Martian Manhunter. Mm-hmm. We've obviously we've done a couple of the Dial H for Hero stories, and we have a plan to do one of The Martian Manhunter stories very soon, so stay tuned for that. But issue 174 published in March 1968, that very iconic cover of the taloned hand beckoning you to the open doors was the start of House of Mystery, probably tying in with the relaxation of the Comics Code Authority and such Yes, things. absolutely. Abandoning the superhero book it had been for a while and going back into, you know, scary anthology type stories. Around the same time, House of Secrets also took that step into becoming a sort of horror anthology. But the significant thing about that is that when House of Secrets followed along from House of Mystery with issue 81, issue 81 of House of Secrets published in June 1969, so a year and a bit after House of Mystery took the step, issue 80 of House of Secrets was actually published in July 1966. So there'd been a three-year pause in the publication of House of Secrets. Like everyone else, I just always sort of assumed that they'd both switched over overnight, but House of Secrets had actually been gone for a while. So that's when, you know, Eclipso and what have you, like, and Prince Raman had been getting published like we talked about when we did Eclipso just before Christmas. Mm. What was especially significant about House of Mystery and House of Secrets switching over to becoming horror anthologies, of course, was the introduction of the horror host characters, Kane and Abel. Yes. Kane first appeared in issue 175 of House of Mystery, and his brother first appeared in issue 4 of DC Special, which was published in March 1969. So, while Kane became the host of House of Mystery, Abel became the host of House of Secrets. My copy of DC Special issue 4 has a £1.95 price sticker on it. So when Mr... I'm not sure Mr. Root knew what he had at that point. <laughs> so with all that in mind, Pizzi has found a story that enables us to talk about this little period in comic book history. Mm-hmm. And as I say, it's from issue 180 of House of Mystery. Now, you love the horror hosts, don't you? Oh, yes. DC had loads of them over the years. You had the Three Witches and the Witching Hour. Weird War Tales went through periods where they would have bizarre characters introduce things. Yeah, like there was like a, a swamp creature almost in one of the early stories. That's right, yes. Yeah, and Destiny, the guy in the purple cloak with the book, yes. who later grandfathered into being one of the Endless, he did Weird Mystery Tales, as did mm-hmm. the character called Eve. I don't remember this one, but there was a Mad Mod Witch that did part of the unexpected. I honestly don't remember that one, but yeah. Okay. It's quite funny. Obviously, all these are done in the style of the old EC Comics kind of horror hosts, you know, like the yes. Keeper and that sort of thing. Yeah. Eve also did Secrets of Sinister House. There was one in Ghosts, which I only came across recently and I'd never seen before, and that's Squire Shade. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about him because we're planning an episode where we do the Gentleman Ghost quite soon, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And Squire Shade looks very like the Gentleman Ghost. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's very bizarre. Yeah, I'm sure it's not coincidental that they look so alike, quite frankly. True. And in Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion, there was Charity. And Charity, of course, turned up in Starman, the James Robinson, Tony Harris, Jack Knight version, remember? Mm-hmm. Jack has to hide in her shop in issue two. Yeah. She ends up marrying Mason O'Dare. There's a spoiler for Jack Knight Starman, if you haven't read <laughs> Yeah. The hosts, to greater and lesser extents, you know, quite a few of them were kind of folded into other comics later on because Cain and Abel, yeah, they uh-huh. both turned up in Sandman, yep. as you say, but like Destiny. So it's, mm-hmm. it's quite, I always liked that when I was reading Sandman in the early 90s that, you know, stuff like that was getting folded in. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it always made me think that a lot of the stories that you were getting in the old horror anthologies were maybe set in the, the Sandman universe or, you know, someone's dreams, something like that, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And also, as well as these horror hosts, you occasionally had like the Phantom Stranger almost being a horror host and introducing stories, and the same as the Spectres. Yeah, I mean, the thing that happens in the Phantom Stranger series of times is he, he acts as a host, he introduces the, the events and sets them up and sets the scene, and then sometimes he's he's involved, especially the, kind of the later the series kind of goes on, he's involved a bit more than others. We have a plan for the Phantom Stranger to talk a little bit more about him when we get to Detective Comics 500, but that's quite a little far away. So, And on mentioning the Spectre, I should quickly mention Madame Xanadu, the, who was the sort of host character in the very short-lived Doorway to Nightmare, Yeah, uh-huh. who popped up as a sporting character in The Dog Munch, and I'm th- pretty sure the John Ostrander Spectres as well. Yep. So that's quite interesting. Horror hosts. Amazing. As I said at the top, we're kind of visiting Earth Prime in this this issue, but there's another kind of Earth Prime reference that's worth mentioning, isn't there, Pizzi? Mm-hmm. Yep. The characters of Cain and Abel were based on two DC staffers. Physically based, that is. Their appearance was based on two DC staffers. Yeah. I'm sure everyone knows this, but it's great talking about yeah. it. Yeah. Len Wein was, the, was basically what Cain was based on. Mm. And Len's obviously quite well known. But Abel was based on Joe Orlando's assistant, Mark Hannerfield. And there's a really cool picture of the two of them dressed as Cain and Abel. Yes. Which we'll try and get on the socials because yes. uh, it's it's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. I love Len Wein. You know, he casts such a big shadow. He was so, he was yeah. so influential mm-hmm. in the Bronze Age. So many characters in comics that he was directly involved in. I was gutted when he died. I really, really was. Not that long ago, actually. I've recently been reading, I think I might have mentioned this already on episodes, but I'm re- I got a hold of copies of the, the X-Men Companion that were published about 40 years ago. Got a hold of them recently, and there's a great interview with Len Wein in there when he sort of expresses all of his frustrations at what Chris Claremont did with the characters that he created. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well worth tracking down. Len Wein. Yes, I suppose we dedicate this episode to Len Wein. God bless him. Yeah. Yep. So, to get back to the point, Pizzi, do you want to tell everyone about the, the scary cover to issue 180 of House of Mystery? Yeah, the covers for House of Mystery are fantastic at this time. They're yep. usually always silent. There's hardly ever any speech bubbles or anything on it. At this time, it's really, really atmospheric. Most of them by Neil Adams, yes, which uh-huh. obviously is glorious. And because we're recording slightly out of sequence, <laughs> I'm not sure where this falls in my whole big, great count <laughs> of Neil Adams' covers. So it might yep. be 12 or 13 by this point. We'll see. Mm. At the top, we have the text that says, Do you dare enter the house of mystery? Well, we're going to have to, or else we don't have an episode. <laughs> And underneath that, we're inside a creepy house. There's a grand piano there. There's some kids. There's always kids Mm. on these covers. Yeah. Uh, Out on a porch in front of it. I love that aspect of these covers because 
kids in danger, that's going to appeal to the kids that are reading the stories and make mm-hmm. them sort of think, oh gosh, that could be me, that could be my pals. I often wonder if it's meant to be the same children in every cover. <laughs> These really unlucky kids. Yeah, I mean, there, there could be well be a series there with them. Mm-hmm. They always put me in mind of sort of, you know, the Secret Seven, the Famous Five, the Three Investigators, that sort of yeah. thing. Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Two of the kids are playing with a what looks like a, a plastic dinosaur monster, green monster. Mm. And a third kid has spied something. He looks absolutely shocked as he looks over his shoulder because behind him is a giant green monster who's crushing that grand piano. Gosh, must be making some racket. He's probably, yeah, exactly. He's probably heard the pion prong. Let's, let's dub in a piano being smashed sound effect here. <laughs> That's probably what he's heard exactly. Yeah. Mm. It's, is there a voodoo-type situation going on? Is the, the, the toy that they're playing with, is that reflected in the creature? It's dead scary. Occasionally, I think that what's going on in the, the covers would reflect what was happening in one of the stories inside, but very mm-hmm. often it wasn't the case. Very often they're just about mood and atmosphere and trying to entice, and they certainly do the job. Yeah, but of course, this cover has got absolutely nothing to do with anything in this comic. <laughs> so <laughs> There is a giant sort of dragon lizard monster in the first story, but that's not really relevant. And mm. as House of Mystery is an anthology book at this point, Several stories in each issue, and we're doing the second one. So, second story in issue 180 of House of Mystery. If I haven't said that a million times already, I've probably said it, I'll probably say it another million times. And this one is narrated by Kane, who, in an opening caption box, says, You've had a long night, Gil Kane. Ten hours of weary work. The very sound of putting your pencil down causes you to jump, eh? Eh? So you think you've earned your rest, eh, Mr. Kane? Well... You're right. You've earned your final rest, because this is page 13. Yes, this story features the legendary comic book artist Gil Kane, who has got a bit of previous with turning up in stories. It certainly does. I think the last time we saw him was Green Lantern issue 45, Mm -hmm. but we talked before about how he appeared in one Green Lantern story of Black Hand. He may well turn up again at some point in the podcast, who can say? So, the first story panel proper shows the artist Gil Kane wearing brown trousers and a white shirt. So here's grey at this point. It might not have been in previous instalments of his life via the comics. <laughs> and he's leaning over his drawing table. The lamp's on. He's obviously working at night. He looks shattered. And he's saying, That terrible story finished. I wouldn't ever stoop to this mediocre level if I didn't need the money. I'm too good an artist. And in the next panel, he looks suddenly very surprised, and he screams, Oh my God! And then in the next panel, the largest panel on the page, we can see that Gil seems to have shrunk down, and he seems to be merging with the drawing in front of him, and as this is happening, he cries, I knew it would happen someday. I'm being drawn into my own artwork. Yeah! Gosh, that's a bit scary. The text narration from Kane continues, saying, This is the story of a man. Well, not really. It's the story of an artist, and his, his name, name is Kane. And we should point out that Kane is written C-A-I-N in the style of the host, and that's crossed out, and K-A-N-E, in the spelling of the artist, replaces it. A piece of paper pinned to Gil's drawing frame says, Art by Gil Kane, and then another tiny couple of bits of text written on his desk say, Inks by Wally Wood, and Story by Mike Friedrich. And very significantly, there's a big ink bottle sitting on his desk. Pete, see, do you want to tell everyone the name on this ink bottle? This would be Higgins Ink. 
Yes, Higgins Inc. There we go. So, Caitlin, I don't know if you're due a huge amount of cash because your your family had a had an ink production thing going on 50-odd years ago, but there you go. That's very interesting. It's also <laughs> worth pointing out there's a, a caricature drawing pinned to the wall in the background. There is indeed, and it says, To Gill from Eli on it. But I've no idea who that is. Yeah, me neither. Sorry, folks. If you know, please get in touch. Drop us a line at the F2 podcast at gmail.com. Yep, if we can't figure it out by the end of the episode, maybe you can do that for us. So, mm. Gail's being drawn in to the, the panel page, and we can see lots of what looks like floating, distorted heads and a figure supplanting himself before them. So, let's see what pans out then. Panel two of the story. It basically looks so Gil has stepped through a window frame. Mm hmm. And he's now inside his drawing. With, we can see the, the panels behind him. There's some creepy, scary-looking beasties looming before him. And Gil is exclaiming, It had to happen. Keep on drawing those miserable comics, and you fall into their rut. But I shall not fall easy. I shall utilise the sword my warrior used. Yes, now this is obviously a reference to the previous story in the issue, which we didn't cover, which Gil drew. A story that's called Comes a Warrior. We also see an introductory sequence to the whole issue that, that Kane is waving a sword around as well, so it's probably the same sword. All very meta-textual. Mm. And we see on the ground, below Gil in his opening panel, that the, the sword that was getting flung about early in the issue is lying there. In panel two, he has grasped the sword and starts swinging it at the scary creatures. And it's very, very Gil Kane and that we get a close-up of his face screaming and the distorted heads as he swishes and swings the sword around. And there's a figure of Gil doing the sword swishing, and this figure of Gil is saying, Why should such an outstanding man of my talent... My creativity suffers such a fate. So, there's a caption for panel three that says, You will remember why, Gil Kane. Remember when? We're back in the real world in this panel, and it seems like there's a red spotlight shining over a guy who's meant to be Gil's editor. Pizzi assures me this is probably meant to be Joe Orlando. Joe's on the phone to Gil and he's saying, Come on, Gil, quit giving me the runaround. I know you haven't finished the story yet. I'm not going to make you out your check voucher. What's taking you so long? This is the 13th time in a row that you've been late. The next panel, we're obviously flashing back to the setup. Gil is slamming down the receiver of his phone and he's saying, Stupid editor, always jumping on me just because I don't meet his stupid little deadlines. And if I know that Orlando, he'll put the worst inker in the world on my story. <laughs> my pencils deserve to be inked in gold, not these <laughs> bums they've been sticking me with lately. Fantastic. The next panel shows Gil with some artwork under his arm, leaving his building. It looks like a policeman directing traffic, but Gil's still ranting as he makes his way onto the pavement, saying, One of these days I'm going to make it big, as a publisher. No more dumb editors and hack scripts and letterers who put balloons in the wrong place. I never wanted to do comics. They don't deserve me. I'm going to where I can have some privacy. So we arrive at the top of page three. Caption for the first panel says, After miles of frantic searching and long driving, Gil Kane finds his objective. Yes, there's a very apocalyptic, dark, scary sky looming behind us. Swirling dark clouds and jagged bolts of lightning. And Gil is walking up towards a figure who's also sort of cast in red. Very, very familiar. This man says to Gil, Ah, Mr. Kane, welcome to the House of Mystery. Because <gasps> it's the other Mr. Kane. Gil replies, Thank God you're home. You've got to help me. I need a room, a nice, quiet one. The red-hued figure says in the next panel, <laughs> Yes, I do. One that will suit you perfectly. <laughs> Just follow me. In panel three, the red-hued figure is opening a door and showing 
Gil into the sort of place he's looking for. The red-hued figure says, See, it even has a drawing board for you to use. The last occupant met with a, a unfortunate accident. Gil Kane replies, Great, just what I want. So the next panel shows Gil hard at work at his desk, drawing away, and he says, Now I can concentrate on something a little more worthwhile. No more will I be given hack stories. I'll write my own. But then Gil's head swirls around because someone else has walked into the room. Gil cries, You! And we see the red-hued form of his editor, Joe Orlando, who's saying, Ah, there you are, trying to hide. Well, you can't. Where's my story? The next panel, it's very, very Gil Kane indeed. In the background, there are close-ups of the two the two men arguing with each other. But in the foreground, there are full figures of the two men standing shouting. There's also a large, scary, looming eyeball. And Gil Kane is saying, What do you mean, story? Those second-rate factory workers you call writers don't know a story plot from a piece of ground. Man, are you Mr. Ego? If you spent as much time drawing as you did complaining, perhaps you'd stop being a Xerox machine with ears. Gosh, Gil looks furious as we arrive at the top of page four, and he says, That did it. Nobody talks to Gil Kane like that. If you weren't so far beneath my contempt, I'd pick your brains out. Instead... I'll do some research for my private outside character and kill you. Gosh, we can see Gil has a pencil in his hand here and he lunges forward. In the background of the next panel, it looks so it's a close-up of Gil's frenzied face overlaid with a very scared-looking Joe Orlando. Gil lunges forward, striking at Joe, saying, Kill! Kill! Joe replies, No! Kill! Stop! Ah! Death by pencil! Oh my God! Right! The caption for the next panel on page four says, What's the matter, Gil? Tired from disposing the body? Or is it that despite the fact you've finally finished the story, the shivery feeling of guilt is still running down your spine? Yes, this panel shows Gil hunched over his drawing table, pencil still in hand, and he's shaking. There's a tiny bit of caption the next panel that says, Is it your sickened brain that notices? We see that Gil has lifted his head and he's looking down at his drawing table, and he says, What's this? Next panel, he looks very surprised. He's got his hand up to his head and he's saying, No, no, it's impossible. And we get some very helpful see what you see dialogue from him in the final panel of page four, as he says, My artwork has become a factory. Little assistants doing the penciling and inking and colouring. This is the last straw. Yeah, and what we see are some very small, grotesque little men all baldy, wearing little ill-fitting, tight little jumpsuits that all have a DC logo in the back of them. Yeah. One of them is holding a pencil and he's drawing on a page. One of them has a more finer nibbed pen and it looks as though he's drawing in the speech bubble. And there's another guy holding a brush who looks as though he's adding the inks. It's all very metatextual, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Top of page five, then, Gil seems to grab himself by the throat and cries, Oh, my God! Caption, then, for the next panel says... You've stopped hurling insults, eh, Gil? No wonder. You have broken the divine right of editors. And for that, we shall have our revenge. And panels two and three of this page look as though Gil is surrounded by a green glow and it looks as though he's shrinking and falling into blackness. Now, I wonder then if this is now us arriving at what we saw in the opening sequence of the story. Because what we see in the final large panel, page five, is Gil looking up and there's that grotesque version of Joe Orlando's head with talons and stuff, and 
you know, curls to his hair that make him look very much like Kane, glaring down at Joe. There are other giant lizards. One that looks very like the one from the opening story, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a large screaming face. It's all very horrific, very scary. The distorted, disembodied head of the editor cries, Vengeance is ours, Kane! And to the right of the distorted Joe Orlando head, there's another exaggerated, scary, mustachioed head of another figure who says, Yes! And this time, it shall be hack work! And Pete's asserted that that's Mike Friedrich, the writer, and I'm inclined to agree with him. So this is all yes, very, definitely. very metatextual. So this massive panel of Gil and the giant distorted heads. Gil recoils, saying, Good Lord, shrunk into my own artwork and faced with the terrible torture of the worst possible demons. An editor and a writer. Gosh. So we now arrive at the top of page six. We're inside the room that Gil has been drawing in, and we can see the closed door. There's a click sound effect. And then a squeeze sound effect in panel two as the door opens and Kane, spelled C-A-I-N, the host from the House of Mystery, enters the room and he says, Mr. Kane? Hmm, he doesn't appear to be here. He crosses to the drawing table in the next panel, looks down at the artwork and says, Must have been frightened away. It happened so often here. What is this he's left on his board? In panel four, he's picked up the piece of paper, lowers his glasses to have a look and he says, This is a masterpiece of Gilcane art. It's exactly like he's been drawing for 40 years. I must frame it for my collection. It will be a perfect addition. The next panel shows the red-hued fingers of Kane, the host, placing this drawing page into a frame. Caption for this panel says, But is this a squeaking we hear? And the next panel, the artwork's in place, and Kane, the host, is lowering a piece of glass over the artwork to keep it safe. There's a speech bubble coming from the artwork, a very faint speech bubble, and it's saying, Help! Don't trap me! Help! You'll suffocate me! Don't! Ah!" And then the text caption for the panel says, But your screaming sounds are silenced by the plate of glass placed over you. And so we arrive at the top of page seven, and we see Kane making his exit from this room, and the framed artwork is on the wall. The caption for the first two panels says, You've made it big, Gil, haven't you? Not everyone rates a place on the hallowed walls of the House of Mystery. And the final panel is a close-up of one panel of the framed art which shows Gil Kane hammering at the glass, surrounded by the horrible, distorted faces of Joe Orlando and the lizards and the scary demons that we saw earlier in the story. And a caption box concludes saying, And especially in Room 13. Well then. The end. The end. The end for Gil Kane. <laughs> is the end for Gil Kane. Wow. What actually happened in real life was that Gil Kane, the artist, disappeared. He never worked in comics ever again. He certainly didn't go on to draw Spider-Man for a long time and have a very successful period drawing covers for just about every Marvel comic for a period in the 70s. This was the last no. that was ever heard of him. <laughs> yes, yeah, so what did you think of the story then? I thought it was great. It reminded me of some of the... Do you remember the the Eagle co- You probably know what I'm going to say here because you always know mm-hmm. what I'm going to say. Do you remember the Eagle comic that we are both very fond of, the revived Eagle? From the 80s. The British Boys Weekly from the early 80s, yes. yes. That featured Doom Lord and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you remember The Collector? I love The Collector. Yeah, me too. It reminded me of one of those cautionary tales that you got in The Collector when someone was a bit up themselves and had some mm-hmm. ideas above their station in some particular field or area. Yeah. And then the supernatural forces rebelled against them and they were sort of trapped yep. or killed horribly. It reminded me very much of one of those. I could see it very easily being done as a photo story. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's very much like the Butterfly Collector episode of that. Yeah. Where there's a guy who's an arrogant butterfly collector who then gets collected mm. by an alien and put under glass, I think it is, in the end, which is great. Yeah. There's also another one which is a, a satire on greedy comic shop owners. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that one? It's absolutely Not hilarious. Fun. I'll find it and send you the pages because it's very, very, very funny. And, and I sort of, I'd like to show it to anyone that I know that actually has operated a comic shop in their time, which is clearly <laughs> very satirical. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's bog standard horror anthology comic sort of thing. Yeah of, you know, a story about an artist and mm-hmm. it's hoist by his own sort of ego almost in a way. Yeah. But no, it's, it's great. It's seven pages of horrific fun. What did you think? Yeah, well, I've done a bit of digging because mm. this story fascinated me and there's a bit more of this story than you actually get on the page. Interesting. Yeah, I've dug up a copy of Alter Ego 164. It's a Mike Friedrich-centred issue. Right. And he's asked about this story by the interviewer. Oh, really? Brilliant. So he's asked... There was a story that I really remember vividly that was done for Joe Orlando's House of Mystery called His Name is Kane. It was a mystery horror story that managed to parody some of the DC staff as well. They were in Kane's House of Mystery and were actively involved in the story. Was that in the original story or did Gil take that on himself and put the editorial staff and himself in the story? Now, very interesting response from Mr Friedrich here. Okay, I'm sitting back. That was editor Joe Orlando's idea. I was a willing victim of it, is, I guess, the way to put it. Joe wanted to make fun of Gil Kane, and then have Gil Kane draw the story that made fun of himself. (laughs) There was a bit of rivalry between Carmine Infantino and Gil Kane, which goes back 20 years earlier, when they were kids drawing for DC. I never understood it. I was a fan of Gil's and loved every opportunity to work with him. Gil had been making public statements on how the writing in comics was terrible, which I took a small offence to. So I used the opportunity to kind of parody some of Gill's own statements to his detriment. In my mind now, though, it was a needlessly vicious story. I am embarrassed that I was part of it. Blimey. Yeah. So that inspired me to dig a bit further. Right. This story is called His Name Is... Dot, 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 Kane! Exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. Between 1963 and 1965, Gil Kane had been working on a self-published comic magazine graphic novel, call it what you will, right. called His Name Is Dot 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 Savage! Exclamation mark. Ah. Bear in mind, when Gil storms out after speaking to Joe Orlando on the phone, he says yes. one of these days he's going to make it big as a publisher. Yes. Now, Gil had drawn the whole story. It was scripted by Archie Goodwin and it came out as a black and white magazine in 1968, so shortly before right. this story. I think I've heard of it loosely. Yeah, it rings a bell vaguely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So His Name is Savage was 40 pages. It was uh, black and white. It was magazine-sized. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have said this is like one of the first graphic novels. And as I said, it was released in 1968. Now, there were 200,000 copies of it printed. Uh-huh. But apparently, only 20,000 of them ended up going out on sale. Everything else was returned. And Gil seemed to be convinced that it was a bit of a, a plot against him. A conspiracy. Interesting. There's a really good book of interviews with him called Sparring with Gil Kane, which I've been reading of late. And there's not a huge amount of detail in this book. But he does touch on that in a couple of points. He says he met with enormous resistance from the publishers when he tried to get his name is Savage, printed. Was it published, sort of self-published sort of thing? It was by Adventure House Press, and I don't know anything about them at all. So I don't know whether it is Gill or whether that's a small publishing company. Right. But certainly there were supposed to be three issues of this. 
but only one actually came out. Right. It says he, when he was making it, he met with enormous resistance from publishers. And apparently printers had been contacted to say not to print this. And he was basically blacklisted until he could find a printer oh my who did more avant-garde material and was willing to publish a perfectly ordinary comic book that didn't have any pornography in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that's terrible. Yeah. As I said, he'd been working on it since about 1963, just doing bits and pieces when he could. Mm -hmm. And he got Archie Goodwin on board to dialogue it. Right. And then they worked together on the next two stories. But as I said, the next two stories just did not happen. And it was called, his name is dot 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 Savage. It's basically an action spy thriller with a cyborg who kidnaps the president, then impersonates him and addresses the UN and shenanigans happens. I see. But it didn't sell as much as, as Kane hoped it would. No. Right, that's a shame. It was reprinted in 1982 as Gil Kane's Savage right. by Fantagraphics. Aha! I'm going to open eBay as soon as we finish recording, listeners. I don't know about you. I've already looked and there's none in the UK at all. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few copies in the States, but they are a little bit more expensive. Right. But yeah. I see. From what I can find anyway. But yeah, it's really interesting. It's quite graphically violent. Uh, I'll possibly put some of the panels that I've managed to locate on some of the socials because you've got things like a guy who's got a gun that is then jammed into someone's mouth and breaks their teeth with it. Wow. You know, that sort of thing. Right. It's, so it's quite... It's quite shocking for the time. Yeah. It's really interesting. And the artwork in it's fantastic. The cover for the original one, His Name is Savage, uh, was done by an artist called Robert Foster. And basically, he just drew Lee Marvin. <laughs> it is obviously Lee Marvin. He actually looks a bit green-hued in the face. Right. Imagine a kind of frankenstein Lee Marvin, and that's what you've got here. Blimey. <laughs> it is so weird. Because it looks like Gil was trying to break out and yeah. do his own thing. Yeah. He is writing and doing stuff at this time as well. He's doing a lot more things than just the standard superhero things, mm -hmm. but it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, as we say, the, the opening story in that issue of House of Mystery is also by him, and that's very like the sort of sword and sorcery yeah. stuff that would become quite popular once Conan sort of started getting published. Yeah, very much so. As I said a little while ago, he does move to Marvel eventually. He leaves DC you know, in the next year or two, because I think the first time I consciously was aware of him was when I read the Marvel Tales reprint of the famous Spider-Man drugs issues, uh -huh. which when I sort of formed that Gil Kane opinion a lot of people have that it's just endless shots looking up people's noses. <laughs> but you realise when you get older that he's actually he's an incredibly talented artist and he's just messing with the form yeah. and messing with perspective and doing something clever. So mm -hmm. I mean, the, the question I now sort of have to ask is, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer it from your, your research, is, is this story, mm -hmm. was it a pointed attack at Gil Kane? Was it just a bit of tongue-in-cheek? Did Gil just draw a story about an artist being trapped in a comic and then was it dialogued on top of that without him realising? That's the sort of thing that I'm wondering. As I said, from Mike Friedrich's comment and his embarrassment of actually being involved in it, it sounds as if it was a pointed attack. As yeah. if this was Joe Orlando's idea. How dare he get ideas above his station? He's just an artist. He's yeah. worked for hire. So get him to draw this. That's horrible. It is. I imagine that Gil probably wasn't told how it was going to end up. I wonder how he reacted when it was published. It's fascinating. So I like the digs about the anchors that he's getting stuck with and all that sort of stuff. And this one's, yeah. this one's inked by Wally Wood. And Wally Wood, obviously, mm -hmm. fairly early on his career, he became a bit more legendary as time went on. We will see, obviously, some Wally Wood work when we get to the revived All-Star comics in the 1970s. So, yeah, I can definitely recommend that Sparring with Gil Kane book. It's fascinating. It's not just interviews with him. It's transcripts of panels and stuff he was at over the years. Right. So you get people like Howard Chaikin interviewing him, mm -hmm. Gary Groth, Stan Lee's in here, Will Eisner, 
so many people are also interviewed in this, but Gil Kane's always part of it. Right. But he's a really, really intelligent man who really knows artwork. We see when he yeah. talks in the in the book, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So I can highly recommend that. I might try and track a copy down, or might try and borrow it from you or something. Sparring with Gil Kane, it's called. Fantagraphics uh, published it. So. Right. Interesting. So we're now going to look at the contemporary reaction to this story from the, the letters pages of House of Mystery. Pete's got his copy of Issue 182 handy. Mm-hmm. There's really very little to speak of in this. <laughs> After that build-up, <laughs> I just gave page. it. <laughs> yeah. There's one letter that refers to it, and it says, Dear Kane, I can only try to express my views on House of Mystery 180. Maybe I should just say one word describing it. That word should be beautiful. But it seems too short for such a masterpiece, so here goes. He then talks a bit about the first story in the cover. And then we got on to this story. Mm-hmm. It says, The second story, also by Gil Kane and Wally Wood, was thoroughly enjoyable and amusing to read. Mr. Friedrich did an excellent job of scripting. And that's really the only comment we have <laughs> on this story. And that's from Dave Party from Hamden. Oh, right. Gosh. So, <laughs> Just round the corner from me then. <laughs> We're hanging this on the conceit that any story which features a real-life DC staff member Shows that it takes place in on Earth Prime. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, let's obviously touch on this sort of important development in DC's publishing history. You know the the era of the the horror anthologies because they become quite popular mm. for a while in the early seventies. There's a point really when they're publishing more sort of horror tinged horror themed books and they are superhero stories. At, yeah, at points definitely a shift in tastes. I suppose in some ways following on from what happened in the 50s, you know, when superheroes faded out and horror comics became popular for a while. Yep. Maybe things do go in circles. Very interesting. No, it's a fun little story. I, I would love to find out what Mr. Kane himself thought or what he was told at the time, you know, but it's um, it's very funny. Yep. It's a nice little satire on, on the whole process, isn't it? It's certainly a very interesting story and uh, it's not going to be the last time we see one of the DC artists under life-threatening uh, circumstances within a story. Mm. <laughs> what could we possibly mean? Stay tuned. But that won't be for some time yet, yes. so there we are. <laughs> so, that's what we thought about the story. What did you think about the story? You can email us at theearthtoothpodcast at gmail.com and give us your thoughts. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Earth 2 Podcast and on Twitter we're on podcast underscore Earth 2 because we're posting some really interesting bonus content this week for this one. So make sure you don't miss that. Yes. And if you're feeling generous, you could go to our coffee page and buy us the price of a beverage. Or if you're feeling positively inclined, you could go to wherever it is you find your podcasts and give us a positive rating. I'm told such things are good for our algorithms. Indeed. And you want to have good algorithms, don't you? Yes. I'm sure we do. Other vice president dances are available. Unbelievable. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Anyway. On that bombshell, I've been Peter. I've been David. We'll see you soon on the The Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. And Charity, of course, ended up in the Jack Robinson. Jack Robinson? (laughs) (laughs) I'll get this recorded before you can say Jack Robinson.